it wouldn't surprise anyone that science is a political battling ground. But its crisis is also now a battling ground. This is a new element which uh, uh, has entered into the picture. You're listening to The Corbett Report. Welcome, friends. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com coming to you in a conversation that's being recorded on the 5th of March, 2019. And today we have a very special conversation lined up for you today, a very international conversation. Of course, I'm here in Japan and our guest is all the way over in Barcelona in Spain. But my, do we have quite a conversation to wrap our heads around today. And for those keeping track at home, this will be, I won't want to say a follow-up, or maybe an addendum to a couple of conversations that I had several years ago with Dr. Jerome Rivets, talking about post-normal science and the philosophy of science, some heady conversations that you might have forgotten because they are now over seven years old. So I'll put the links to those conversations in the show notes for anyone who's interested. But today we're talking to uh, Professor Andrea Saltelli, who is available at andreasaltelli.eu, and I will uh, put that link in the show notes as well, um, including a link to a very important book that I read um, recently that I think is very much pertaining to the the concept of the crisis of science that we've talked about recently here on the Corbett Report. The book is The Rightful Place of Science, Science on the Verge, and uh, we'll also be talking about a couple of papers that uh, Professor Saltelli has written. One, What is Science's Crisis Really About?, which he co-wrote with Silvio Funtowicz and was published in Futures in August of 2017. And one, Why Science's Crisis Should Not Become a Political Battling Ground, which was published in Futures in December of 2018. With all of that as preamble, Professor Saltelli, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Let's start just a little bit about the your own background and how you got interested in these areas. I'll just read from your website, uh, uh, your CV. Andrea Saltelli has worked on physical chemistry, environmental sciences, applied statistics, impact assessment, and science for policy. His main disciplinary focus is on sensitivity analysis of model output, a discipline where statistical tools are used to interpret the output from mathematical or computational models, and on sensitivity auditing, an extension of sensitivity analysis to the entire evidence generation process in a policy context. At present, he's adjunct professor at the Center for the Study of the Sciences and the Humanities at the University of Bergen, and he lives and works in Barcelona and is visiting fellow at Open Evidence Research, UOC Barcelona. Uh, professor Saltelli, what, what are we missing out from that biography? What would you like to tell the, uh, listeners about yourself and your background? <laughs> well, not much. It's already you said a lot. Uh, it's indeed it's a bit strange because I was born as a chemist. My first work was uh, were in chemical kinetics, and then I did a lot of work on mathematical modeling in an array of very heterogeneous fields. Then I spent uh, three decades working with a European Commission, uh, leading a group of people doing applied statistics and econometrics, and hence uh, sensitivity analysis. And all of my life, I was fascinating by the production of evidence using quantification and mathematical modeling, and at the same time puzzled by how easy it was to produce uh, evidence of a poor quality or altogether cheat with numbers. So the, the attention to uh, responsible production of, um, of numbers of quantification was always with me. And then I made a number of uh, uh, bad friendships. So I started talking to the epistemologists, notably Silvio Funtovic and Jerry Rabbit, which you mentioned already. And because of this uh, bad friendship, I was uh, finally corrupted and uh, got my involved into this <clears throat> issue of epistemology, philosophy of science, science for policy, uh, and so on, which really now 
fascinate me to, to, to a good degree. Well, they fascinate me too, but I come at this obviously as a layman, not a scientist myself. Perhaps there's a window into our conversation from your biography, because you, as you say, you started out as a, as a chemist, but you started to branch into sensitivity analysis of model output and statistical uh, impact assessments and things like this that obviously paint a different picture than I think is in the popular conception of what a scientist is and what a scientist does. In this day and age, science has become specialized on uh, models and statistics in a way that I think in the popular conception of folk science is not the central pursuit of ultimate truth. Uh, In what could be termed folk science or the Cartesian dream are a couple of terms that are used in Science on the Verge. Uh, people tend to think of science in a certain mindset, um, but obviously that doesn't apply to the way that science is conducted these days. What can you tell us about that difference between popular conception of science and the way it is actually practiced in modern policy settings? Um, for me, this is... Uh a co-op problem of, of, of modernity. Uh, there is really a hiatus between how science is perceived uh, in, by the general public and by the scientists themselves for a large majority, a kind of uh, positivistic uh, vision of science has the offspring of the enlightenment, which is concerned with the production of uh, facts separate from values and emotion and, and uh, science as objective and so on and so forth. Um, enhance a science capable of informing policy with the production of uh, disinterested uh, and objective knowledge and the reality of uh, what science is and the many use to which science is put from the construction of algorithms to uh, artificial intelligence to the production of various kinds of chemicals which may or may not be extremely dangerous, opioids and neonicotinoids for pesticide, and then uh, the chapter of military technology and, and so on and so forth. So we have, uh, we have a science today in the practice of the working scientists, which is quite far from the vision of the uh, an enlightenment science. And I think this, this difference, this um, um, is a problem in the sense that we should resolve it. Otherwise, we risk having uh, a very polarized discussion about science, which can only have as a result uh, a collapse of trust in science. And of course, that is part and parcel of that crisis of science that I was gesturing towards recently on the podcast. And I did note a specific line jumped out at me from the preface of uh, Science on the Verge, which was written by Daniel Sarowitz. He wrote, uh, the use of science in guiding human affairs is always a political act. Now, that's a bold statement, um, because, again, I think that rubs up against the conception, the sort of folk science conception that science is completely value neutral and we're just looking at facts and evidence about the world. But the use of science in guiding human affairs is always a political act. What does that mean in the modern context where we're dealing with such incredibly important matters that have policy implications for everyone around the globe? Well, it's a, it's, a long, it's a long chain of, of, uh, of uh, consideration which should be put down there. The first one is even when we are talking about a simple piece of datum, um, as Jerry Ravitz writes in one of his uh, early books, before a single datum is collected, a lot of uh, the work has already been done by way of framing the problem, defining what is uh, that needs to be tackled and how it can be measured and so on and so forth. So when the social scientists say that data or evidence is a result of a social construction, this doesn't mean 
that this is uh, um, arbitrary is simply what it means. It's the result of a negotiation and social construction. Uh, uh, but unfortunately, there is... Uh, uh, there is, uh, because of this positivism or neopositivism, uh, very often found in natural sciences, and, uh, and this tendency to regard this as a dangerous intrusion of social sciences into natural sciences, uh, so that, uh, uh, for instance, typically, you may, you may know natural scientists strongly resent being the subject of study from the social sciences uh, when they go there as anthropologists and measure what science in action actually do. Uh, following the title of the famous book of Bruno Latour. So there is uh, this kind of um, science war no? always uh, uh, boiling in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the underground, which uh, makes this, co this conversation a, a bit difficult because if, if it were not for that, the idea that science... Uh, uh, evident, the production of evidence for policies, a political affair, would be a no-brainer, of course, because not only you have the datum, but then the datum becomes evident, and then the evidence must be constructed as an argument. And this is not something which a policymaker does by himself, he does it with a scientist. So obviously, it's a high political affair. That's such an important point, and I hope uh, the listeners out there will let that sink in, what that really means in terms of the conception, again, the popular folk conception of science that we're handed uh, versus how science is being used to construct political policy <coughs> on a range of issues, but specifically uh, as it impinges on what has been defined as post-normal uh, scientific issues where, and you'll forgive me if I don't remember the mantra off the top of my head, stakes are high, evidence, uh, facts are uncertain, and... And, uh, uh, values are in dispute and decisions are urgent. Yes, <laughs> yes exactly. I, remember. I also always forget one, but with you... <laughs> <laughs> Together we can come up with a yeah. list. Together that's... we can handle them, yeah. <laughs> but this is, uh, th again, this is something that I talked about with Dr. Rivets on, on the program last time. But uh, let's, let's delve into what this means for that concept of a crisis in science that I was gesturing towards on the podcast recently. Specifically... I note that, of course, as you say, a lot of scientists are uh, resistant against this type of um, examination of the process of knowledge production in through scientific research and how that is done because they have a lot invested in the system as it exists. And like I assume, most people don't want people peeking under the hood of how the the, the sausage is really made. So <laughs> exactly. Uh, so let's let's talk about the the pushback that this concept of a crisis in science has gotten over the past decade. Um, with some people denying that there is any sort of problem at all, and then others trying to overplay certain um, certain aspects of that crisis. What is your take on this? Is there a crisis in science, and what is that crisis? Uh I think that the diagnosis of um, of the crisis in science was uh, um, was very um, uh, was very detailed, produced by the thinkers which have, who eventually produce uh, the concept of post-normal science later on. I'm thinking especially of uh, uh, Jerry Ravis, uh, and um, and the idea is that uh, you have. A conception of science which comes to us from the 19th century as science uh, operated in a small community of people knowing one another pretty well uh, and hands sticking their face and their reputation on every scientific claim. And then all of a sudden, we find ourselves submerged in a work where zillions of scientific papers are produced. We don't know one another. We only know our impact factor. Uh, what, what Jerry Ravis realized is that this sheet from 
this transformation in the social fabric of the uh, of the making of science would have important consequences, especially in relation to the quality control arrangement. Because if you and I work in the same field and we know personally one another, we have a high interest to defend our image and to make sure that we don't say anything rash or incomplete or, 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 uh, or inaccurate. Uh, whilst if we have instead operating in a normal scientific environment under the pressure of publish or perish, desperately chasing for grants uh, from which the our livelihood depends and those of our collaborators, of course, the tendency to cut corners become, uh, become very high. So uh, at the root, if you really want to go to the core, um, the essence of this crisis due to uh, a, a very changed condition for the operation of science, uh, whilst the quality control apparatus has largely remained what it was. So it seems to me that one aspect of this this problem that you're diagnosing here is that it is not like it is sometimes framed um, in the press. This crisis of science is essentially a crisis of statistical ignorance or fraud on the part of scientists. And that, and if we can clear that up, everything will be better. I think you're gesturing to something much more deep and structural, um, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. Um, does that no, no, accurately it, portray this? It, indeed. Uh, the, the, the poor teaching of statistics, uh, uh, the criteria that science should be efficient, even in the moment in which it's being taught, uh, all these contribute to a climate in which people misuse statistics uh, either because they want to fake uh, the results or even unwillingly. I mean, m very often people are victim of their confirmation bias and their misuse of statistical tests, not because they are tr uh, uh, trying to cheat uh, on their result, but because they are, were taught statistics in an approximate way and they use a test in a way which allows their confirmation bias to take them along. Uh, so indeed, the crisis, though, I mean, technicality are an important price and the way an important piece of the crisis and it's very important that we reconsider the way we teach those things because statistics is something very delicate very difficult which will take um, quite some time to be properly understood and assimilated uh, why this is an important element this is not all the story all the story includes really that there is a, a totally dystopian set of incentive in place which push scientists in a totally different direction and 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 the, this is a, 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 an acceleration a run which is really difficult to stop. It's really difficult to steer this machine now in a different direction. That's such an important point. And once again, I want people to really cogitate on what that, that ultimately means, because what you're gesturing towards is the idea that this is a problem, but it will not be simply solved by just in, uh, instituting certain practices for the scientific community to follow, although those may be necessary, and I'm glad that conversation is happening. That won't get to the root of the problem. So let's ask prescriptively, what is the solution to this crisis, or at least how do we arrive at that solution? Uh, because we have started by saying that the problem is the image we have of science, um, what we would need, and many have mentioned this possibility, is that we need a reformation with uppercase R, like in the reformation we had um, in the 17th and 16th and 17th century. Um, 
a reformation of science as, as one which was operated by Luther when the press allowed the Bible to be to be to be printed in German so that everyone could read it, uh, and uh, so something of this nature could or should possibly happen for science. Uh, but the reformation for science has a long history; it's been already uh, anticipated or um, desired by the people writing during the during the uh, the movement of protest during the Vietnam War uh, in the late uh, 60s and early 70s. So this is not a new concept at all. And of course, if a reformation did not take place in the in the 70s, there is no reason why it should be taking place today. So. Uh, on one hand, we need to reform science. On the other, we are fully aware that such a reformation is not behind the corner. Uh, so if you ask me what is a strategy to tackle this, I would say um, this is very much a, into the personal sphere of action. So each individual scientist had to take upon himself to fight uh, various instances of uh, methodological corruption, um, uh, power struggle and asymmetry of information uh, in the making of science for policy because, you know, a very important element of uh, science for policy is that uh, it can be purchased. So those who have more money can more easily buy information and evidence for making their own policy heard and scientists can play a role there by fighting those asymmetry. And we could add to this a list of uh, um, of action which a scientist could enter. A scientist could fight uh, the corruption of the political process, they could fight uh, gerrymandering, they could fight uh, uh, control or monitor the integrity of the electoral process, monitor the bad practice by by uh, Facebook or other big company to pollute the electoral. There is a lot which scientists can actively do uh, to defend the integrity of science. Uh, but this, I would say, is more of a movement of resistance than the actual making of the reformation. That's right, because again, I don't think that addresses the, uh, the the issues that we talked about before with regards to perverse incentives that are baked into the cake. And it's one thing to ask people to be good and moral and to do the right thing, but when the, the incentives are skewed the exact wrong way, uh, it means those types of people are not going to get ahead in their profession, and that's a pretty tall thing to ask. So instead of backing scientists into a corner and putting all of the onus on them, I'd like to explore how this issue has, obviously it impacts all of society. Everyone in society is impacted by the decisions, the policy decisions that are made on the back of this scientific, or in the name of this scientific research that's being conducted. So what, what role do the, the people out there have in constructing a, a reformation of science? Um, see, let me, let me say one, one thing. Um, in the moment in which a scientist engage in a reformation, him or herself, he or she is not being a saint. And as you correctly said, he or she will not be out of the trap of being forced to um, follow no, the, the, uh, the drift of um, the present trend of a system of perverse incentive. Imagine you are a scientist and you have people working for you, a postdoctoral student or the like. What would you uh, encourage them to do? To never publish unless they are... Um, uh, super certain of the quality of their result, their career will be uh, quickly terminated. I mean, you know, you really have uh, uh, difficulties to um, uh, to navigate those waters. So if, even if you are perceive yourself as belonging to a movement of resistance, this does not mean that you will behave as a saint and you will have to come to compromise. And the most important things would be to be aware of the contradiction you are living. I think this is a very important point. Uh, for the general public, uh, I would say that 
I really, uh, I'm really s- uh, sad to see how easily we are being driven into uh, 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 a status of continuous confusion and destruction. And more and more people, and I especially talk about young people, are, are led to believe all sorts of conspiracy theories. And, and this uh, is a result, really, of this kind of um, letting go of what young people call official science. Now, so if science insists in portraying an image of itself, which is, which is wrong. <laughs> you will not be surprised that people reject it altogether. You know, the 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 baby with the dirty water, and they fall prey of all kind of sort of conspiracy. This should be resisted because if we let go of scientists, really of science, really what is left? Right. Well, I, I also share the the concern over the loss of a valuable tool for knowledge production in scrapping the baby with the bathwater as it, as it comes to science. And on that note of the use of that phrase, conspiracy theories, which I do note you used in, uh, sorry, you're in your paper on uh, why... Uh, science uh, should not become a, a political battling ground. Yeah. Why science crisis should not become a yeah, political Yeah, yeah. This refers to yes. the fact that in the USA, corporation and conservative are using the crisis of a science to invalidate the work done by regulators. Right, no? but let me say, let me read that yeah. passage because I think it actually flips yeah. the issue on, on, on its head if from a different perspective than a lot of people would think of that. So you say science and policy institutions should be foremost concerned with remedying the ongoing drift in trust, whose effect is evidenced in the proliferation of conspiracy theories by rebalancing power asymmetries in the use of evidence. At present, the actors with the deepest pockets can buy the science they need, frame issues according to specific agendas, and enforce these on the rest of society. This is done via perverse uh, perverse practices, such as, for example, ghostwriting, influencing the debate on evidence-based policy, such as in the case of the Brussels Declaration, mobilizing Nobel, Nobel Prize laureates to defend a corporate line, and so on. In this asymmetric warfare, corporations may become the main originator of the evidence available to policy simply because politicians and their staffers lack the resources available for corporations. In the U.S., corporate interest can spend on lobbying $34 for each dollar spent by diffuse interest and unions combined, and the situation is not better in Europe, especially due to the intensity of lobbying power which the concentration of EU institutions in Brussels facilitates. I think that's a very apt assessment, but that seems to me to be what some of the defenders of science, the scientific status quo would point to as conspiracy theories. Oh, you can't buy science and scientists are above that and corporations have no effect. But it seems to me that's exactly what you're pointing out here is that this actually does happen. So people, I would think, have a legitimate concern about the way that scientific practices are corrupted by money. Yeah, yeah. For each uh, sentence of this long period you have read, there is in fact a lot of scholarly work. I mean, you know, I'm just making those things up. A lot of people spent really the best part of their professional life investigating how this is done, especially uh, this idea that policymakers uh, don't have the uh, intellectual uh, and research uh, and uh, scientific capacity to build their own evidence. So they speak to people who have this evidence. Who has the evidence at hand? Of course, the lobbyist. The lobbyist comes and he has the data. And he has the information, and so of course, you know, policymakers uh, need to uh, are all, all too happy, you know, to 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 be able to use this information. Um, no, I would say that the public need to be uh, to devote a bit more attention to all this, not to the effect of losing trust in science, but to gain some kind of circumspection, no, in the way 
they appreciate science. Also because otherwise science becomes a matter of jokes, you know, now they make jokes about, oh, a new study demonstrated that if you eat chocolate, you lose weight. And, and, and narrative in the nutritional science, this is now becoming really the subject of jokes. So if, if, um, uh, if science has not to become the subject of satire and of jokes, uh, the public also need to, uh, while holding science in respect, to develop a certain uh, level of circumspection in the uh, in the in the image of science in their use of scientific evidence right discernment over what actually constitutes a valid argument from a scientific perspective and what doesn't but in some ways again that throws it back in the public's face which is another tactic that is used in this situation to try to defend the status quo oh the public are just ignorant they don't understand science and they're getting it all wrong they have these crazy conspiracy theories and let's ignore the public's um, input on this, whereas I think something that's gestured to in Science on the Verge uh, on a number of different uh, occasions in that book is the idea of a more participatory construction of scientific knowledge that involves drawing in knowledge bases from outside of strictly scientific disciplines that involve local and and regional uh, understandings and things that, that might not be part of the scientific framing of a question but might have relevance on that question. I'm not sure I'm articulating this in a very see, see, uh, specific have, way, you, but I think that's, that's yes. the, the thing that I see gestured towards in your in your book. Sisi, you have said it very, very clearly. This is a concept of an extended peer community formulated by by post-normal science, but post-normal science was not inventing anything new. I mean, the same concept was articulated by uh, by various uh, historian and philosopher of science. I remember a very cogent uh, page from uh, Paul Feyerabend where you said that uh, experts are only experts in a certain domain and they become ignorant in the another domain. So if you allow public to participate to a debate among experts, the first thing which the public will realize is the experts are themselves non-experts. And this realization of the public, of the non-expertise, of the um, limits of the expertise of the experts, is an important element of um, of maturation. No, so all this goes under something called the democratization of expertise, in a sense, uh, tendency, which is not really a magic uh, wand to solve all problems. If you um, if you look at what Postnorma says, it says preciously little about then how this is done. Is 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 more the idea that you may avoid serious errors by going in this way, rather than this way being the tool to find the optimal solution. We are biased by an idea that science pushes you to find, helps you to find optimal solution in the space of multi-possibility. The, the truth is that given the uncertainty which exists, the best you can hope is perhaps to avoid, to do something seriously wrong, and this is what post-normal science really uh, try to warn you about. Um, what, what tools you can, what strategies you can put in place to make sure that you are not overlooking some really important uh, viewpoint or, or, or stake in an issue which would make uh, it, uh, which would uh, change the way you perceive it, in a sense. Well, I think that's that's ex exactly right. And it's, as you said before, it's about the way that questions are framed. It determines, to a large extent, the way that they are answered. So if we are framing an acid rain as a risk, as a health risk, then that changes it, as opposed to looking at it as pollution that needs to be taken care of. And those two very different methods of, of uh, understanding the problem lead to very different policy outcomes. Yeah. So... If your, uh, if your title, if your thesis is science's crisis should not become a political battling ground, 
how can you possibly avoid this becoming a political battling ground? Because, of course, the question is who gets to frame the debate and in what way? And that is what the political battling ground is all about. Yeah, you, you have a point. You have a point. My title was indeed a provocation. In fact, it cannot not become a political battleground. But it was really, I was trying to draw attention on the fact that this is being the case. Uh, so it's not science. Eh? The, the crisis of science itself. So it wouldn't surprise anyone that science is a political battleground. But its crisis is also now a battling ground. This is a new element which uh, uh, has entered into the picture. Because beforehand, those people who wanted to um, to contest science use uh, ideas of transparency, accessibility, uh, validation. Uh, but now with the crisis, the same people really have an extra weapon. They can say not only this science is uh, obscure or non-transparent, but this science is also wrong. No, uh, and and hence you cannot regulate uh, on the quality of water, on the quality of air. So this is really a push against the regulator in order to allow, uh, of course, higher level of contamination and pollution and emission. All right. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. The final question that I'd have for you today is how do you see the technologies, the communication technologies that we have available today changing the landscape for the way science is performed, looking at the the extended peer communities and extended peer review, which is now possible and more and more becoming uh, at least a talking point among scientists and the idea of open science in very uh, many different ways, including on the online publication um, uh, format, changing the, the, the some, some of those incentives. Do you see there's a change that's happening just because of the way that science is being communicated these days? Well, something we, we say very clearly in our article is that not all disciplines are the same when it comes to the crisis of science. And we always said that there are disciplines like high energy physics, astrophysics, and other disciplines which were better at defending themselves against this structure of perverse incentive. And not, not by, by accident. Very often when you see disciplines being a virtuous example, it's because these disciplines are still operate in, in within communities where everyone knows everyone else. And so there is really this element, the old social structure is still being uh, perpetrated in those communities. And, and and one of the of the things these communities have done is to use online server like archive to pre-publish their result and have on this a pre-review because the review system, we don't have time to discuss it now, is also seriously corrupted. But if you have uh, for once, a use of the information technology, which is instead of being destructive, as in the case of Facebook and and fake news, etc., but in the case of uh, um, pre-registration of research studies, uh, pre-review research article, and so on and so forth, all these tools um, are should and are used to. Um, to, to as part of this resistance movement to maintain the quality of science. Um, so I really have the highest um, admiration and respect for the people who operate this system, like the people operating alltrials.net, um, to have the people operating uh, in the psychology, the activity of uh, Brian Nozick and people like him, uh, the people uh, manning um, retraction watch, studying what's happening, keeping an eye on what publishers are doing. So uh, I really think there is a lot of people doing uh, quite a good deal of good work out there to, to, to put some you know, line of resistance against this uh, uh, kind of devastating crisis we are, we are living. 
There's a lot to think about, and we've only scraped the surface of it. Uh, entire yeah, books can indeed, be written indeed. about this, and they have. <laughs> so once yeah. again, we're going to direct yeah. people to Science on the Verge. I'll put the link, as I say, to your website, to Science on the Verge, to the two papers that we referenced today. Are there any other things that you'd like to direct people's attention to today? Well, uh, I think that over a broader context, the crisis of science the crisis of technology in the in those aspects of technology which we might perceive as runaway. So a technology which we no longer control. Uh, the crisis of democratic representation, which is evident when we realize that the quality of the electoral process is being tampered with and we see the insurgence of uh, authoritarianism and, and populism. So the political crisis, the technological uh, concern, uh, the crisis on science. I believe all these elements are very much linked to one another with a lot of feedback loops and and, re and positive feedback loop and reinforcing uh, system loops. Um, for instance, a society which increasingly depend on expert because it's ever more complex uh, generate the kind of resentment against those experts which in turn alimenta the collapse of trust which we were mentioning before. So this, um, those... Um, those systems are really coupled with one another and interacting in many ways which are dangerous. So I believe that scientists have responsibility not only for their own inner house, to keep their house in order and to resist to the corruption, methodological corruption and all that, but also in relation to this other system, the politics and the society and the technology. Uh, they really should be very careful that they, they also there hold uh, important responsibilities. All right. Some very interesting material that I will take some time to ponder. I hope people will let this uh, conversation sink in and maybe watch it again if they didn't pick up all of this. And of course, pick up a copy of Science on the Verge. Professor Andreas Altelli, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your time.